Gavin. Hey, Louie. Hey, girly. Um, I am riding high off of Jennifer Lopez's aura. I cannot believe the Oscar buzz is our, I'm the campaign manager for this movie. I will say, and I think I said this post our JLo episode, I have a friend who's been an extra in a couple of her movies. Okay. Both in Hustlers and in this one. Oh my God, amazing. And couldn't really talk about this one at the time. Because, it's Michelle Buteau. <laughs> yeah, it was Michelle Buteau. And he was saying that Jennifer Lopez is so nice, like such, such a celebrity, like mm-hmm. clearly a celebrity, like shows up in a car, gets out in, in fur, probably fake fur, but he was on, in a scene that takes place on a plane, and I don't even know if it's in the movie. Okay. But... They, he said that they took all day to shoot, and in between takes, she was like cracking jokes. She was like, oh, mm, "Get these people mm, more drinks." Yes. Like, like, aren't we having fun, guys? Like, I will say the movie is fully ridiculous. There is a lot of digital for technology. Um, there is a lot of uh, spawn con, is what I'll say. Ooh, Vitamix paid for yeah. this movie. Wix.com paid for this movie. <laughs> City National Bank, NBC, like it's. Girlies streaming Stream on, on Peacock. Streaming on Peacock because <laughs> Jimmy Fallon is this movie. Hoda's in this movie. Like it is. Oh, it is. No. I mean, the oh no is not for Hoda. I'm fine with Hoda. No, the but, oh no is Jimmy but, Fallon. Yeah. No, but what I love about Jennifer Lopez is she said, "Listen, I'm making a movie and I'm not paying for it." <laughs> How about that? <laughs> I want to be able to make that announcement someday. Yeah. By the way, guys, I'm making a movie. Yeah. And I'm not no, paying a cent. And I'm not paying for it at all. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is The Mixed Reviews. We are a film podcast where we take a film subject such as an actor, director, or a mini genre. And we give you a history about it. We talk a little bit about that history. And then we're like, here's our five-star reviews. And here's our one-star reviews. Yeah, we take two weeks. And I want to be very clear. We watch as much as we can. Oh, my goodness. As we can, being the... <laughs> According to Letterboxd, I've now seen 70% of this subject's film. So, I mean... Uh, good for you, because I don't have that math for how many I saw, but it certainly isn't 70%, but I did my best, okay? Um, sometimes we take on these subjects who have monster filmographies, um, so as much as we can, we we watch, you know, the good, the bad, and um, we're here to present you and hopefully give you an entry point into their career. Um, I'm excited about today's episode. I am too. Um, it was hard. It was hard. Um, but icon legend star of of the canon of film before we get into it though we have some old biz um our last episode was the lovely Kira knightley i loved that episode so much because it was a good chance to revisit and be like oh yeah she kind of is that bitch yes. she is good she's very good okay i'm very proud of my poll i want you to know so we asked you guys to vote for your favorite Kira knightley movie and the results are in we got eight percent saying other um, and then we basically said, pick your Joe Wright movie. Which one do you like? Um, Anna Karenina, which was Gavin's pick, came in at 25%. Atonement came in at second place with 30%. And Pride and Prejudice, my pick, came in at first with 37%. Yeah, it's just, there is no wrong answer. Absolutely not. And we did get, we got a smattering of Elizabeth Swans from yes. Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. We got, I think, at least one Bend It Like Beckham mm-hmm. in there. So mm-hmm. there is a variety of non- Joe, Joe Wright properties. Correct. But I do think there is something very magical about the way those two work together and her acting style specifically. There's been so much talk on Twitter in the last couple of days about people, specifically Batman people, mm. being like, oh, it's uh, it's torture. Oh, I just. 
And Kira's very much one of those people who's like, it was a movie. Yeah. Chums. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I love, I love, so like, it's like what her, Tony Collette, who's like, yeah. well, it's just a movie, so yeah. it's fine. Uh, Kirsten Dunst recently, she was like, yelling as acting isn't for me, really. <laughs> um, I love these girlies so much when they're just like, yeah. it's really not that serious, yeah. guys. Read the Jared Leto's down. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> it's like, you put on a costume and became the Riddler. It's fine. <laughs> you can take it off. It's fine. You go home at night. Yeah. Eat, a, eat a casserole. Have some lasagna. You're fine. Yeah, your puzzles do not make you an evil mastermind. <laughs> It's a comic they book. They make me an evil mastermind. <laughs> Don't come for my shtick. It's, it's, it's enough is enough. Jennifer Lopez. Wow. Yeah. Aw, brings it back. She's with us always. Uh, thank God. <laughs> um, but okay, that is enough of Keira Knightley. Um, we salute and we move on. Um, so Gavin, who are we talking about on today's episode? Today's episode is about a screen icon, a legend, an absolute just... I mean, there is no one to compare to him. Mm -hmm. And that's a very important thing to say, because obviously his career was very sort of hindered by the medium in which he worked in, which we'll get into in a moment. But we're talking about the absolute icon, Sidney Poitier. Yes, Sidney Poitier, who recently passed away. Yes. Also, his birthday was yesterday, February 20th. So, so. we're talking the la the day after. Happy birthday to the legend himself. Um, I have to admit that I had not seen, I want to say, 90% of the movies that I saw for this episode. Um, he is someone that changed American film. Yeah. I think not even just film, like, just, like, all of America, really. For me as a kid, though, it just was not part of my, like, culture. Right. Well, I think the thing is, is we come from an era in which we were raised... However, truthfully or not, which it seems as we get older, it wasn't in a sort of pseudo post-racial Yes, absolutely. Way. You know, absolutely. We, we were taught that the I being white, Louis not being white, uh, but we were taught in a very sort of like the civil rights movements happened in the 60s and everything was okay after that. Yeah, guys. And we're <laughs> done with that. Yeah. And... <laughs> Nothing can be further from the truth, and we're definitely going to get into that. But I, I think because of that, somebody like Sidney Poitier's impact gets a little lost in the shuffle because he was, for better or for worse, and he says this, and I don't want you to take my words out of context, this comes from him, he was the Hollywood token mm -hmm. for many, many years. Mm -hmm. There were Hollywood used him as a, you have your leading man, what more could you possibly want? Right. Don't you understand that this makes you equal to us when there's one billion white men yeah. that would easily get cast in any role that he's in, but Sidney Poitier was the one chosen black man, yeah. deservedly so for his talent, but also Hollywood wouldn't allow that to spread around. Right. And also he was very much desexualized. Yeah. All of his characters had to be very, you know, just like buttoned up. Yeah. Super educated. Stalwart and true. Always. Saintly. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, he, Wesley Morris, a culture critic at the New York Times. He's an incredible writer. He wrote a an appraisal of uh of Sidney Poitier and it's it's beautiful writing and I think he just like says it best like he Wesley says he's our greatest actor ever he delivered so much um in where he had daggers thrown his way but also uh you know 
uh, people think that he was amazing just because he was the first, you know, the first to win an Oscar. Um, but he he leaves so much more than that. He's not just a milestone. He was a force, a talent, and he shaped the way we live, you know? I was reading how him and Harry Belafonte were being chased by fucking clan members in yeah. the 60s and 70s, like, delivering money to the South. Like, he was at the Martin Luther King, you know, um, a speech in Washington, D.C. Like, it, 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 he is one of those people that transcends um, film and culture and all around. And And his personal story is just, like, truly, when I was reading about him, I was like, God, this is, you know... Viola Davis's story is like is, is a perfect like mirror and echo yeah. of coming from literally nothing and um you know struggling and working so hard to become one of our greatest. It, it, I just don't think there's anything like more American than that. It's it's incredible. He's incredible. I will say you know what a pleasure it was to watch the movies. I did get to watch. I'm sure that there are many that I missed, <laughs> but to casually watch. A Raisin in the Sun. Yes. I was like fucking like blown away, you know. To to been able to see that on stage. And for a lot of people, for a lot of white people, that was their first image into the life of a black family. Yep. And it became such a huge hit, but it was it's such an odd thing because that play the basis of it is that they're just people. Mm -hmm. They're people like you or I people and society is the thing that keeps them down and and keeps them in their, you know, in the place that society has deemed that they should be. And for white people, it becomes a sort of voyeuristic. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. ooh, Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, they are just like us. And what we're butting up against here is like, we've done, um, episodes about old Hollywood stars. Yes. Um, but we haven't done episodes about old Hollywood stars who are also navigating fucking racism. Yeah. Like, and so a lot of the the closest we've gotten is Cicely Tyson, but because she didn't work as often and she also had the, other aspect of it in fact that she was a woman yeah. it, it's a very different we've story. talked a little bit about like you know when rita moreno also yes. you know um but i think like the story of like the black man in america like is just uh it's it's a whole other ball game to be quite frank and for him to he had to do both he had to he said no to the things that he didn't want to he said that they were you know that were um, tropes and and he he wasn't going to you know bend to what they wanted to see this black man as but then he also had to play these the saint he had to play the perfect black man to you know get white people to love him and to yeah. and to make him palatable and so like that's what, the word palatable what a it, fucking crazy like you know tightrope to walk um and yeah it's it's all that being said, it was hard because a lot of the movies are about race. Yes. I mean, it literally wasn't a decade into his career before he got his first film that never once mentioned that he's a black man. But even in movies like in Shoot to Kill in the 80s, 88, like, there's still those moments where they have to make the joke of like, you've never seen a black man in the mountains before. Right. And so it's like, he's, he. it's almost like he couldn't escape it. You know, like they were... Hollywood was very happy to make him uh, the outsider. And like, it was very like in all these movies, it's like, Ooh, how magical. Like, you know, it went from uh, in the heat of the night where it's like a black man in the South and how fucked up and crazy that can be 
to cut to the 80s and it's like oh we're putting him in the wilderness yeah. and like with all these white people it's it just never ended but um yeah i'm excited to get into sydney poitier me too so why don't we get into our rewind I think a, a good thing for our audience to keep in mind when we're talking about this is he could have had a very different career if Hollywood had allowed him to do other things. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to hear a lot of us talk about a lot of movies that sound very same samey. Yes. And a lot of, obviously, obviously, as we said before, a lot about race, which is not to say they're not good. A lot of them are great depictions of this but it's unfortunate that Sidney Poitier never really got to be in, like, a fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, he never got to be... There There were constraints to his career. And when he did start to take the reins of those towards the 70s, the film suddenly became less popular. Right. And also, like, he never got to really get the girl. And even yeah. the movies that he did have the girl, it was very desexualized and even uh with guess who's coming to dinner like he has the girl but it's like i don't think they share a kiss in the movie they might kiss on the cheek they might stand next to each other but like it is he he was very desexualized and so like you couldn't get like you know a great you know rom-com or any and he was very funny you know yes oh he is incredibly charming he he like burns up the screen when the camera's on him but because of these constraints, yes, yeah. he wasn't—he was never allowed to right. hit that level. So, anyways, keep that in mind. Sidney Poitier was born on February twentieth, nineteen twenty-seven, in Miami, Florida. I think most people don't realize that he was, in fact, born in the U.S., even though he is from Cat Island um, in the Bahamas. He's the youngest of seven children, and his mother was Evelyn, and his father was Reginald James Poitier. They're Afro-Bahamanian farmers who owned a farm on Cat Island. They did tomatoes, right? Yes. So. They would travel to Miami to sell the tomatoes and other produce for wholesale. And it was during one of those trips that uh, his mother went into labor. Wow. And Sidney Poitier was born three months premature. Um, during this time, his father's also working as a cab driver in Nassau to like pay their bills. They remained in Miami during those three months in order to to get him to nurse him to health. If anybody has ever had a preemie in their family, I've had a preemie in, in my a preemie. family. Oh, are you really? Mm-hmm. Look at you. But there are health problems that come along with that. It's not always great. And his mother even went so far as to basically go to a fortune teller, somebody who got a mystic, if you will, to ask if she should be giving so much effort to this child. <gasps> or if this child was basically just lost. And she said, don't worry about your son. He will survive, and he will not be a sickly child. He will travel to most of the corners of the earth. He will walk with kings. He will be rich and famous. Your name will be carried all over the world. You must not worry about that child. So... For 50 cents, my mother found the support she needed for backing a long shot. I will say there's many, many sources that we've used for this, but one of my main sources for this was Sidney Poitier's second autobiography, The Measure of a Man. I unfortunately couldn't find his first autobiography because even though it was a big hit in the 80s and he took two years out of his career to write it, 
It is mostly out of print now, but you get stories like this from that book. Uh, his mother, he said, was a very strong woman, didn't talk a lot, didn't openly communicate. Um, when they were bad, they were beaten. When they were good, they were praised. I mean, one of the things his mother did for work was to grind stone into gravel, and she would get paid $6 per ton what of gravel. Fuck? She would go into the forest and find stones, sometimes as much as 50 pounds, 30 pounds, uh, larger still, and she would bring them home. And she would sit under an almond tree with a great big broad straw hat on her head, and she would pound that stone into smaller stones, and then the smaller stones into gravel. She would use a hammer. And from morning to night, she would pound small stones into tiny bits of gravel until she would have a mound reaching almost to the ceiling of our little house. And a guy would come by once every three or four months because that's how long it took her to accumulate this pile of stones. He describes growing up on Cat Island as very, very free, but also semi-primitive. His words, <laughs> once again. And because of this, like, quote-unquote, simple childhood, he said he learned a lot about the way people behave, the way they interact with each other. But he also didn't learn about race. Mm -hmm. Because until he was about ten and a half, until they left Cat Island, he only ever saw two white people. Uh, the only way I saw a reflection of myself was in pond water. I had no frame of reference because there were no white people on the island except two. Two. But their presence represented neither oppression or power. They were just two people, one a doctor and one a small shopkeeper. I never had an occasion to compare my color with anything else. Therefore, I only saw myself as what I was, a human being. At around 10, his family moves to Nassau from Cat Island. I don't want to get too, too much into his lineage because there's a lot of guesswork involved. Even Sidney Poitier is not really sure. But the, the assumption is, is that his ancestors were a family of slaves that had escaped Haiti mm -hmm. and moved to Cat Island and set up on a farm. Hmm. And therefore, because the name Poitier doesn't exist for other black families oh. outside of... So it is like a, a name that they think that they took from a Haitian. Right. Um, but yes, uh, they, they end up moving to Nassau. And this is like the first time he's exposed to, quote unquote, the modern world. Uh, electricity, indoor plumbing, refrigeration, movies. He would sneak into movies with friends. They would get into trouble. Love that. He ends up getting in a lot of trouble, though, during this period. And his father is basically like, I can't control this kid. I don't know what to do. So those five years that he spends in Nassau... Finally, his father's like, you're out. You're going to go live with your brother who has a large family in Miami, Florida. Ships him off to Miami, Florida. Now, this is Jim Crow era. Mm -hmm. And this is the South. Mm -hmm. This is really where he's experiencing racism for yeah. the first time. You know, he tries to get jobs. He tries to work. He talks in his book about being a delivery boy and going to the front door of a white woman's house and her telling him that he deliveries are around back. And when he uh, just left her delivery on the front door, when he got home later that night, he found his brother's family 
cowering on the floor of their home with their with their heads to the ground and their hands behind their because that woman's husband came to their apartment and was like what the fuck is up with this kid like you all need to watch your backs simply for being black yeah of course he spends one year in miami and he's like no no bueno out and so he decides he's going to move to New York City at the age of 16. He mm-hmm. he gets on a bus, goes to Savannah, takes a summer job, um, makes enough money, at, like enough money that he's like, how far can this money take me? Right. And the man at the bus depot is like, I don't know, New York City. And he had heard of Harlem. He, yeah. you know, was this magical mecca of black people. He's like, that's where I want to go. So he goes. And he, like, lives on the street. He becomes a dishwasher in the meantime. He tries all sorts of things. He lies to get to get himself into the army. He's assigned to the Veterans Administration Hospital in North Point, New York, and working with psychiatric patients. But he gets really upset about the way the hospital is treating these patients and fakes mental illness himself in order to get out of the army. Uh, they start sending him to a psychiatrist. He flat out tells the psychiatrist, I am faking. I just want out. And the psychiatrist is sympathetic to this plea and gets him discharged under Section 8 of the Army. Wow. All at the age of 16. You're not even supposed to be in the Army at the age of 16. That's funny. He's like, I'm a liar, Dina. Yeah, exactly. And I don't belong here. And he's like, and what is an actor other than a liar? No. Yeah, exactly. but, uh, Truly. But th- that whole story is fascinating because he says that was also sort of his introduction to psychology mm. and though and like these conversations with the psychiatrist really opened him up to uh thinking about his life and experiences in a way that he hadn't and being able to process his emotions instead of just being kind of because he admits that he was angry he hated being treated the way that white people would treat him but what? at isn't there a movie that he plays a psychiatrist yes i'm like getting like okay the vibe oh yeah no he yeah and he did Say, once he got out of the army and he's back in New York, there's a premeditative way to which he starts carrying himself. And he starts calling on a lot of the stuff that his parents taught him as a kid. He says, you know, if you're a poor black person on the streets of New York in the 1940s, please, thank you, Mm -hmm. excuse me, mister, excuse me, ma'am. Everywhere I went when I came back to this country at the age of 15, it was remarkable how many times thank you and please opened doors for me he's just like so street smart i mean yeah he he has to be yeah he ends up getting another job as a dishwasher and he auditions for the american negro theater they're auditioning trained thespians yeah and he can't even read so the person running the audition chases him out of the audition is like, how dare you? Why don't you go back to dishwashing? This person did not know him from Adam. Right. And those words hurt Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Because he was like, how did he know? Why does he look at me and think I'm a dishwasher? Right. So he goes back to that job. And luckily there's a man, an elderly Jewish waiter at the diner he was working at who, while he was working overnights, would sit with him on his lunch break hour and teach him to read That's the newspaper. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And so he ends up going back to the American Negro Theater and auditioning again. He's like, guess fucking what, beach. And he's like, look how good I am. And they're like, literally, you're the only man that auditioned. So guess what he gets in? 
Oh. <laughs> Audiences didn't like him uh, because he couldn't sing. And that hurts me because, you know, I love to end an episode with mm-hmm. our subject I singing know. or I music. Know. Tone deaf. No. So tone deaf that when you hear him singing in a movie, no matter how, like, Lily's in the field where he teaches the nuns to sing and it's just like, that's not dub, him. Dub. Dubbed. Dub arena. Can't carry a tune. So he decides like, okay, well, I can't sing. Audiences hate that. What's one thing that I can do? And he's like, it's I, I can use my voice. So he starts listening to the radio and mimicking the speech patterns on the radio, specifically Norman Brokenshire, who was a big radio personality at the time. And that's why you have that Sidney Poitier voice, voice that, yeah. that beautiful voice that he has. He gets rid of his accent completely and speaks with that very flowery. And he finally lands a, an understudy role in one of their big performances. And the night that the ta- a talent scout is going to be there, the lead gets sick. Oops. Poitier comes in, gets the role, and gets immediately noticed. That lead... Is Harry Belafonte. Casual. Very casual. His good friend, Harry Belafonte. Exactly. They become very good friends. There is no um, animosity between them about Harry this. Harry was like, it's fine that he poisoned me that night <laughs> for it's, the role. It's very Anna Kendrick and Camp. Very that. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think it is funny that it is fucking Harry Belafonte. Yeah, like, yeah. very famous. Yeah. He gets cast in a Broadway production of Lysistrata. Love. And it opens and closes in like two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's a disaster. And he says himself that he is bad. He forgets lines. He skips things at all the time. He's the only person who gets a good review out of that cast. They're like, he's the only one having fun. He's the only one who realizes he's in a comedy. He's <laughs> They're like, wait, Liza Strata is a comedy? <laughs> And so this it essentially is the start of his career. It, it really launches things for him. And he starts getting roles in movies, doing TVs and movies. Um, he starts a foundation called Committee for the Negro in the Arts, the CNA, um, an organization whose participants were committed to left-wing analysis of class and racial exploitation. Because of this connection, it ends up, sort of badly for him later in the 50s because he Mm. ends up a bit on a blacklist Mm -hmm. because of the association of some of the people in the group, specifically Paul Robeson and Canada Lee. I do want to point out, at this point in his personal life, because we're we're moving into the movies and we're getting to the movies, and I know you're coming for the movies, but at this point in his personal life, he's starting to make a a bit of money. So he's like, maybe now's the time where I settle down. And so he goes and he marries Juanita Hardy from April 29th, 1950, and their marriage lasts until 1965. Um, They immediately start having kids, and he opens a restaurant. Uh, And, like, they're... It's a barbecue joint, and in New York City, and people are buying food from... Can you imagine having, like, bought, like... And he did the cooking himself. It was him and... ribs. Yeah, like... And, like, it was not because once again this is like early 50s like not expensive meals i think he says and i i'm probably misquoting it but like 80 cents a plate okay like, uh, yeah he is an entrepreneur <laughs> he he's got his hands in all sorts of things okay so he also starts uh getting cold called by agents 
And this one particular agent calls him and is like, I found a role. It's perfect for you. And he goes in and he reads the script and he tells him no. Oh. And he's like, this is a movie. Like, you, what's, and he's like, I can't do this role. But he's like, this is perfect for you. I don't know what you're saying. And he's like, I can't play this role and I cannot tell you why. Uh, so he turns it down, goes back to his restaurant. Six months later, same agent calls him. I want to take you on. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that you're a man of principles and you saw something in that script that I as a white man didn't see mm. that you felt dehumanized you, even though you won't tell me what it is. And I respect that. By late 1949, Poitier had to choose between leading roles on stage or working for Daryl F. Zanuck in the film No Way Out. No Way Out is, I think, maybe one of the best intros to an actor I've ever seen on I was, film. What, I was like, that's his debut? Yes fucking nuts and but again also like a hard debut yes like a hard watch <laughs> debut i was like this movie is aggressive so no way out sydney poitier plays a doctor who's treating a bigoted caucasian patient played by richard widmark who eventually becomes his friend and stars with him in f- three other movies so like i do love the fact that they have this insanely filmic contentious i mean richard widmark goes nuts by the end of this movie yeah but I'm so happy that they were able to be like, we're buds. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's a tough movie to watch because I will say it is, I think, very honest about the racism at the time. And I think we're going to see a pattern here. I think some of the movies he's in are much more honest mm-hmm. about the racism. And mm-hmm. some of the movies are a little more... Everything's good. Yeah, everything's it's, fine. It's like Sugar Cody. Like, yeah, there's racism, but whatever. We can get over our differences. Yeah, yeah. This movie... So he's a doctor and, like, he loves his boss who's white and cool. Um, and he's like, we love you so much. LOL. But then, like, two brothers from, like, a shootout or whatever come in. One of them is pretty bad. He ends up dying in the care of right. uh, of, of Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier recognizes that he has a brain tumor. Right. And, and, and it almost immediately dies after that. Right. He's like, I and, didn't do anything. This man had a brain tumor. And his brother, though, is like, this Negro killed my brother. Yes. and But is a fucking psycho person about it. And I mean, it's hard to watch. There's a scene where a woman spits in Sidney Poitier's face. Ugh. And I was like, and once again. This, this is his first movie? This is the first movie, and this is not the stage. So that woman spit in his face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's and and and. But again, also like the the role is like him. Like he is the man making it. He's a black man who's a doctor, and he's yes. making it. And it's all good and fine. But then like running up against this brick fucking wall of like people are assholes and racist and prejudiced, and it's like you could. There's the moment when he gets spit spit at, and he turns around. And just, like, fucking leaves. Like, the doctor's yeah. like, where are you going, doctor? Away? Like, what's going on? And it's like, no matter how good yeah. this man is, he's a fucking young doctor, successful, and, like, it, it's still it, and awful. It, and it's such a hard thing because it's, how do you have empathy for other people who don't consider you one of them? Yeah. Jerry! Hey, you won't help him that way. Keep your black hands off my boy. <laughs> it's it's very difficult, but I really liked this movie, I'll be honest. And like I said, 
you know, it's very 1950s. There are certainly, like, things that I'm like, oh, no, like, ooh. But I think for the most part, its heart is in the right place, and it does a good job of communicating that, and is, for the most part, very honest about the time period and, and how people were treated. Yeah, I love that there's, like, there's pushback against his boss, who, like, is somehow, like, what's racism? It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're cool. Like, you're a great doctor. And it's like, yeah, fuck off. Like, this is... This right. is to your, your lack of ability to recognize that he is being treated poorly because of his race is just as bad as the people who are treating right. him poorly as race. Like, you can't be like, I'm colorblind. Everybody's yeah. my friend. Like, yeah. it also doesn't work. Yeah. From there, you know, 1951, he ends up in an adaptation of Cry the Beloved Country with Canada Lee, previously mentioned that he gets in trouble for knowing. And this is another tough movie. It's a movie set in South Africa. It is very anti-apartheid and very much about that. And because of that, doesn't get shown in South Africa. In fact, the director had to... Uh, Zoltan Korda, who directed the film, had to say that Poitier and Canada Lee were his servants huh. in order to even work with them Jesus in, in shooting the film. It's controversial, very good, um, tough. I, another movie that surprised me about how frank it was being about mm. the things that were happening in the time period. Because I think when you look at movies, a lot of the time hindsight adds so much depth and... Or you're making Forrest Gump. Right, right. <laughs> and you're just like, no, no need for hindsight. His next big high-profile role comes in 1955 in Blackboard Jungle. He plays a student in a rough-and-tumble school. It's interesting because he's one of the few people of color in the film. And so the teacher instantly latches onto him as like, oh, you're the rough element. Mm. And he's wrong. Right. Which is not to say that Sidney Poitier's character isn't a little rough. He is. The I mean, this movie is, in my opinion, a little ridiculous. I actually think this teacher is maybe not a very good teacher. I was I was like, imagine dangerous minds, but like she's kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, uh, but it's I know to sir with love. Yes, but but it's so funny to see him on the opposite side of the to sir with love thing. What's your name, wise guy? Me, Miller. Gregory Miller. You want me to spell it out for you so you won't forget it? No, no, you don't have to do that. I'll remember, Mother. Sure, Chief, you do that. Or maybe you'd like to take a walk down to the principal's office right now with me. Is that what you want? You're holding all the cards, Chief. You want to take me to see Mr. Warnicky? You do just that. And then in 1957, he's in Martin Ritt's Edge of the City, a remake of a TV play he did about a man who gets a job on the docks and becomes friends with a white man. Right. And the, the racism that they face, as well as the repercussions for the white man that happen. He because, was AWOL. Yeah, he's AWOL. And, but by befriending a black man right. becomes under more suspicion than he would have been. Right. I like this movie a lot until I realized, oh, is this like the origination of like black man helps white man. And in the end, spoiler, like they kill him. Like yeah. it's, I was like, oh, they just threw away Sydney's character and like the white man survives and he is able to reconcile all of his problems. The ending to me is like very problematic, but like, as a total, like, it was great to see him and this white guy, like, 
they're buds and like they go on dates together with girls and like there was a lot of movie to like but overall yeah I, like, I think for me the acting is really because it's him and john cassavetes and i think that they have a really good acting relationship together yeah. uh, but you're right you're everything you just said is very much right i mean and he's in other movies around the time but not like not a lot of them are launching him to success right. i watched a movie called go man go that is about the uh creation of the harlem globetrotters oh okay fun and that's a bit of a footnote in his uh <laughs> but i i would be remiss if i didn't bring up something of value which is a film directed by richard brooks and starring rock hudson and it is about the kenyan uprising it's essentially like white people are right and like which like is a tough pill to swallow it's a lot of like these people say that this is their land while i was born here too and it's like you know to colonize yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. the whole and that was that was a hard movie to watch i must say and yeah i i'm happy there's less of those in his it's um, surprising that he took that role yeah i mean it's frustrating that it's named something of value also um i know he's everybody's darling but churchill killed a lot of people in that uprising and the movie ends with a churchill quote and i was like oh boys let's let's calm down this story i'm gonna tell maybe a, a little bit out of order but this is sort of the nature of how movies are made during the filming of blackboard jungle poitier is asked to sign a loyalty pledge essentially being like I've never had any dealings with communists. I don't know. And this is because of that association with Canada Lee and the guy that directed Cry the Beloved Country. And Sidney Poitier refuses. Ugh. This happens three more times during his or this early part of his career. He's like, no, thank you. That's not, you can't tell me why I'm signing that. Right. I'm not doing it. Which leads to him losing out on a lot of work. It also leads to him, and this is a bit of presupposition on my part, uh, because I think the other thing that you could say that he was never given a studio contract. Mm. We've talked about the studio system before on the show, but essentially it was tying actors to a certain number of films for a particular studio. A lot of, lot of actors had to do that. He was never offered one. And my assumption is because of this consistent refusal to sign these loyalty pledges, I think the other aspect is that he was black. Right, right. And so studios didn't think that they needed to sign him right. to because they could get him to do whatever they wanted. Right. Which is not true because he's very much his own man and very much picky about his work. But because of this outsider-nish, if you will, it puts him in a negative place of negotiating when it comes to doing his roles. And so he is offered Porgy and Bess. And he turns it down. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Harry Belafonte turns it down. Like, no. I mean, they they essentially had to beg black people to be in this movie. And that's because Porgy and Bess, for all of its quote-unquote classic theaterness, is not a great depiction of black people. Right. You know, the, very famously, another composer whose name escapes me at the moment, but we're not here to talk about him, said at the time, writing about another's culture's folklore only works if that culture is gone and you're interpreting for them mm -hmm. and the American Negro is still around and doesn't need Gershwin to do that. Right. For them. Right. And so that is why a lot of people don't want to do it. 
But Sidney Poitier really wants to make this movie called The Defiant Ones, in which he is on a chain gang with a white man. And Hollywood's like, you can do your little movie. If. if. Yep. And so he goes on to star in Porgy and Bess. Porgy and Bess is kind of a disaster. It's him and Dorothy Dandridge both have to be dubbed. Neither of them can sing the roles. Literally the only person who wants to be in this movie is Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr. He like lobbied and lobbied and lobbied. And the Gershwins were like, fuck no. Like, we don't want that either. And he eventually gets in. Um, They get... Otto Preminger to direct it. Otto Preminger styles very realistic. The studio's like, no, yeah. <laughs> we want sets. We yeah. want it to look like sets. So Otto Preminger shoots it like that. It it doesn't go well. It's not the big American musical that everybody thinks it's going. Right. To be. I mean, the people know the song like "Summertime," and that, that's, yeah. But like overall, it's kind of just like a. Hmm. He's on his knees the entire time. Yes, because um, Porgy is crippled and i'm only laughing because one of the studio notes was porgy should stand at the end okay well that's it's just bizarre it's it do- just bizarre i will say i don't did you get so you i got watched it. it it's impossible to find the, impossible. Ger- the gershwin estate is like no thank you ma'am they have it locked in a vault yeah they hate and, it and so basically the only version of it you can find is like vhs rips and they're really really low quality really low quality on youtube you can find it and like you know, it's it's it, it's a shame because for all the dubbing, like both him and uh, Dorothy Dandridge act their fucking faces off yeah. in these really emotional songs. Like, and a, and a, and a, a lot of this is you know men fucking taking advantage of her, and yeah. like you know, and and him who is like this beggar who just wants to be with this woman. So the acting, I think, is really well done. Which, once again, impressive for a movie he doesn't want to be in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like, he could have phoned in that role. Right. Because they were essentially blackmailing him in right. order to get another movie made. Sporting life, you stay away from my woman or I'll break your neck. I'd like to see a lousy cripple like you break my neck. No, go on now. i get my hands on you once more and you see someone. Speaking of which, 1958, The Defiant Ones, Tony Curtis, the Stanley Kramer picture, Stanley Kramer, uh... <laughs> As Sidney Poitier has put it many times, Stanley Kramer was answering to gods of his own because he was one of the few people like trying really to push out these progressive films. They're not all successful, I will say. I do think some of them I'm like, Stanley Kramer, what were you thinking? I think this one is pretty good. But this is also the first time that he really faces backlash from his own community. Mm. Essentially, this movie is Tony Curtis, Sidney Poitier escaping from a chain gang together and sort of the exploits of trying to just escape. Yeah, literally they're, they're trying to break apart from yeah. each other and 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 the people they, and the people they meet along the way, the the places they have to break into, there's the a, police who are chasing them. Absolutely. Um there's a very famous uh, moment towards the end of where they've been separated. Sidney Poitier has the chance to get to freedom and Tony Curtis falls behind and Sidney Poitier sacrifices that opportunity for freedom in order to help this white man. And that's the moment <laughs> that black people turned against Sidney Poitier because they were like, well, this is white fantasy. Right. Yeah. Mama, we run, bitch. <laughs> like, and I mean, and it's funny. Well, because invariably his treatment's going to be so much worse yeah. than anything Tony Curtis. Is but gonna even like in the movie ends with the police kind of being like, you guys. And I was like, oh, in this movie, the bad guys, like the 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 criminals, have to get caught, um, and so it kind of undercuts. Like, there's a really great moment where they're caught in this community, and one of the men there 
he releases them and we find out that he was on a chain gang. Yeah. And so there's a lot of this empathy of like, you know, and they even they tell us why he's in jail and it's bullshit, you know, fucking like yeah. fuck cops. And like for all of this like empathy and like, you know, humanness that we're learning along the way. And I think the movie does do a good job of it at the very end. It's like, but nope, they're going back to jail and that's it. Come on, let's go. Go where? Parva, let's head for Parva. Pineville South. I don't go south. I see the old girl in Pineville. If she's still there, we get this broke. Now, come on. And then what? I'm a strange-colored man in a white south town. How long you think before they pick me up? Get off my back. I ain't married to you. Now, what do I care? Come on. You married to me, all right, Joker. And here's the ring. But I ain't going south on no honeymoon now. We going north. That man is played by Lon Chaney Jr., uh, which, once again... I have listened to other film podcasts who have disparaged Lon Chaney Jr.'s acting ability. Stanley Kramer said whenever he read a script that had a difficult role in it, he knew he could contact Lon Chaney Jr. because he would nail the part. And honestly, when you watch this movie, 100% nailed it. Um, Gavin will fucking come for you if you talk shit about Lon Chaney. He's just such a sad man. It hurts me the way that he died. Anyways, I do want to tie this back to Sidney Poitier in in his book, tells a story about early on in his career. I'm not sure where this falls, but I think this is a perfect segue into it. Uh, he is, he has dry cleaning across town in a white neighborhood and he needs it for an audition. So he goes there and they're like, your dry cleaning's not done. And at this point, the sun has gone down. I don't know if we've discussed sundown laws in this podcast, and but essentially he's in a place where if you're a black man in the white side of town and the sun has gone down, the police can kill you. Okay. And so he immediately runs into a couple policemen and they haul him into the back of their car and he hear, listens to them talk about murdering him and he begs for his life. They pull out their guns. They put it to his head. He says, you know, I'm just trying to get my clothes. This is where I live. Please, I can walk back there. The officer behind the wheel said, boy... If we let you go, you think you can walk all the way home without looking back once? Yes, sir, I replied. Think about it now, he challenged. Because if you look back just once, we're going to shoot you. Think you can do that? Yes, sir, I reassured him. All right. You go ahead now. We'll be right behind you. I exited the alley turned right onto the main street and proceeded to walk the next 50 blocks, never once looking back. By shifting my eyes, but not my head, ever so slightly to the right, I could see that police car reflected in the plate glass windows I passed. The cops were there right on my tail. And there they stayed for the entire 50 blocks. This is a man who already has some privilege over, you know, other folks who are not making money and have a career in Hollywood. And so, like, it's 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 the same thing in these fucking movies where it's like playing a doctor, playing or whatever. It doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. Horrible. So... The Defiant Ones lands eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Best Actor nomination for both Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier. Poitier becomes the first black actor to be nominated for a competitive Academy Award as Best Actor. He doesn't win, but he does win a BAFTA for Best Foreign Actor. Wow. 
he acts in the first production of A Raisin in the Sun alongside Ruby D on Broadway. And it really, like, as I mentioned before, introduces white audiences to black life. You know, I mean, the audiences in New York at the time were overwhelmingly white. They were the people that could afford to go to Broadway. And I'm sure they all considered themselves very good liberals. But it's so crazy how things just haven't changed. Yeah. <laughs> he does... Also, in 1960, by the way, Porgy and Bess comes out after um, the Defiant Ones, even though he shot it before. Um, So he does receive a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy from them. Um, In 61, he stars in the the film adaptation of A Raisin in the Sun. Um, He receives another Golden Globe nomination. I do know that we could go on and on about Raisin in the Sun. It's really such a great thing. But I will say, just for reference... (laughs) Him and Claudia McNeil, who plays his mother, hate each other um, (sighs) in real life. And he talks about it in his biography about he saw the play as from the son's perspective and she saw the play as from the mother's perspective. Mm. And he says after he left, it is basically always played from the mother's perspective. But while he was there, he made the play about him. I'm raising the son is about a family that's about to inherit $10,000. $10,000. And... Everybody in the family wants to use it for a different responsibility in their life. The mother wants to buy a house in the suburbs from which Sidney Poitier and his wife, played by Ruby Dee, can raise their son and basically an investment for their family. Sidney Poitier believes the best investment for their family is opening a liquor store where he can take the money and multiply it. Uh, Their younger sister wants to be a doctor, so she wants the money for medical school. And Sidney Poitier believes that every other character who has designs on the money in the end, if they lose that money, would remain unchanged. Right. Except for his character, who's literally at the end of his rope. Right. There's that famous scene where he's like, I'm a chauffeur. Is that what you fucking want for my son? I've watched so many things. I mean, I want so many things that sometimes I think they're going to drive me crazy. See, I'm 35 years old, and I ain't got nothing. I ain't going to be nothing, mama. Just look at me. Look at me. I'm looking at you. And you're a good-looking boy. You got a job, a fine wife, a son, A yes. job. Now, I open and close car doors all day. I drive a man around in his limousine, and I say, yes, sir, and no, sir. And shall I take the drive, sir? Mama, that ain't no kind of job. That ain't nothing at all. I see his point, I'll be perfectly honest, which maybe is not fair, you know, because he said the writer didn't see it that way, the director didn't see it that way, the producer didn't see it that way, and they were all good friends of his. But... I think the reason why the film works is it kind of is from the son's point of view. Yeah, I mean, because, spoiler like, his mother decides, I'm going to trust you, you are the man of the house, here is this money, do with it what you may think is right. And he is reinvigorated as a man, and he, you know, whatever. But he makes the decision, and it goes south. And without that moment, it's just like, there is no second act. Right. Absolutely. So, eh, you know, maybe he lost a friend in that, but... They're fine. Yeah. In 61, he also stars in Paris Blues. The interesting thing about Paris Blues, and I don't know if you saw it, is that, like, it sort of deals with American racism from an outsider perspective. Mm. His character has been living in Paris for five years to avoid the racism of America. Because in Paris, he's just treated as a person. But at the same time, personally, Sidney Poitier thinks the movie is not as potent as it could be because the fi- it's a play 
in which the film version has invented a black girlfriend for him, yeah. played by Diane Carroll. So, like, good actor, right? but created this to drop the tension between him, because the other, the white couple in it are Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, famously end up married and, and go on for years together. But the play, there's a romantic triangle between right. the three and here it, it's just yeah in, invent, in inventing you know another black character you're basically just being like and the blacks will be with the blacks and right, the whites right, will right, be with right, the whites right. so as much as it is saying about american racism and poo-pooing on it like it's still also very much a hollywood creation they had to like sanitize it yes yeah. i did not watch that but i did watch 62's pressure point oh yes and this is the movie i'm talking about because he's like a therapist and he's like i remember my hardest patient and it's like flashback flashback and it's like this neo-nazi like maybe not even neo because neo no it was not yeah because it was a flashback to the 40s yeah and it talks about the thing that people don't talk about enough is that there was a major nazi rally at madison square garden yeah and that's a huge plot point in this film yeah and it's it was what's fucking wild is like Bitch, they're talking about QAnon shit. They're talking yeah. about Trumpism and the rise of, like, you know, you get sad people who feel like they've been, you know, um, mistreated. And you give them, it can be a, the stupidest motherfucker ever, but if they have charisma um, and charm, they can just, you, and that's how you start a fucking movement. Yeah. And so he's working with this fucking guy to, like, and he's, he, he's, tell, he's begging the other doctors, like, he is not well enough to be released and they're like he seems fine yeah the white people are like i don't get it and and he's like yes he's a functioning human but like he we have not changed his ideals he still is full of hate yeah and and this fucking nazi is like he's just um angry because he doesn't like white people at that point i knew that my primary concern was not with the welfare of my patient but with the question of whether he was making any sense and how many people there were in this world to whom he would make sense For although psychopaths are a small minority, it seems significant that whenever militant and organized hate exists, a psychopath is the leader. And if, for instance, 100 disgruntled and frustrated individuals fall in line behind one psychopath, then, in essence, we are concerned with the actions of 101 psychopaths. I love the flashback stuff. I think the the border, the like mm-hmm. him as an older man, Peter Falk. I love Peter Falk, so it's not his fault. He is like the Stanley Kramer of it all because Stanley Kramer produced this. Like his fingerprints are there and feels very much like. And the moral of the story is, and you yeah. don't need it. You yeah. don't. You absolutely don't need it, yep. especially because the very very tippy end. And this is not really a spoiler because the the main plot has ceased. Um, Peter Fox uh, comes to him for advice about right. dealing with the patient and at the end he's like maybe I'll just do blackface and I could be a better psychiatrist <laughs> I was just like ah. and, then, and then they just have Sydney just like nodding and smiling like uh-huh. Uh-huh, get the fuck out of my office yeah yeah um, in 63 he stars in Lilies of the Field um, this is a turning point in society essentially um, he is awarded the Academy Award for Best Actor. He's the first black male to ever win this. It's a very small film. He, like, the director put his house up for collateral on the budget. Uh, They were literally given 14 days to make this movie. They did it in 14 days. You know, it's about a a black man who runs across a group of nuns. He's kind of a drifter, but he is... Drifter handyman. Yeah, he's a skilled laborer, and 
they want him to build them a chapel. Yeah. And so he, these are all German nuns who fled Germany and, and he helping them with their English as well as doing this work for them for the promise of payment. Um, and he starts to come around on this idea, this lovely idea of like building his own chapel. Yeah, at the beginning, he's like, "Hey, wait a minute, yeah, you're like, taking me on a ride." Exactly. Um, and they're and they're like, "It's for the Lord, so yeah. you have to do it." Ich been the Lord. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, um, We don't understand you. La la la. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Conveniently, <laughs> but um, and I think this is a perfectly delightful little movie. I really, I, 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 I think like it's this. a delightful little movie. I honestly don't get like why this was the one that like pushed him over the edge it maybe it is because of the christianity of it all um maybe it's it's lighthearted. it's not as hard to watch as maybe his other ones i think people were kind of like i mean and this is me assuming things like there are certainly some bits about racism here and there but it's not like there's like the the guy who's like you're working with those nuns like yeah i thought things were gonna go south that way but he's like well okay and i'm like oh okay Interestingly enough, you know who would agree with you about that? Huh. Sydney Poitier. <laughs> I mean, Sydney I don't po- think it's one of his great works. I I, re- I did really like it, but once again, I agree with you. Like, why why this? And that question bothers him as well because he really sees himself now fully as the token, the Hollywood token, mm. and he's like, I won this award because it's the safest thing you could give this yeah. award to me for. Because. It is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to countless numbers of people, principally among whom are Ralph Nelson, James Poe, William Barrett, Martin Baum, and of course, the members of the Academy. For all of them, all I can say is a very special thank you. To me, it's mostly benign. I don't know. Like, I was like, kind of like, okay, I can see why people are enjoying this. <laughs> um, and and so this also is the area where, like, so gone is the era in which he can play the troubled teen. And gone is the era in which he plays the escaped prisoner. Because after this movie, he starts to work a little less and gets cast mostly as the, you know, the soft-spoken appeaser. He ends up in 65 in the Cold War drama, The Bedford Incident. This is the first film, this late in his career, 15 years into his career, where no one mentions he's a black man for the entire time the movie is on. Wow. He plays a reporter who goes on um, a a nuclear, a U.S. nuclear vessel during tensions uh, because he thinks the captain of this vessel, played by Richard Widmark, he thinks he's a loose cannon. And guess what? He is. Um, this movie was made sort of as a reaction to Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove because the the guy that directed this produced Doctor Strangelove and thought Stanley Kubrick took it um, a little too casually mm. and was like, nuclear war is terrifying. Yeah. And, yeah. and I liked this movie. Very tense. Um, a little was, silly, but... It was on my list and I was like, I'm either going to watch this today or Porgy and Bess. And you watched The Greatest Story Ever Told. Ah! <laughs> um... He is in The Greatest Story Ever Told. Uh, less said about that, the better. Uh, a Patch of Blue starring Elizabeth Hartman, Shelley Winters. This movie's huge. First ever interracial kiss in a film. I was like... 
It's very Avril Lavigne, like, he is black, she is blind, could it be any... It's like, uh, also, I mean, not that, like, I mean, it's taken forever for good depictions of people with disabilities on film, but, like, this is fucking nuts. Mm -hmm. Like, she's like, an orange? Like, yeah. It's, it's, it... And and he talks about it in in the book about, like... He thought the script needed work, but the other actors that were in it really sold it for him. Like, working with Shelley Winters, he said, like, she's playing an awful person and she threw herself wholeheartedly into it because it was clearly not who she was. And, like, that's what did it for him, Mm. was he was like, oh, we're acting, you know, so. But I agree, I'm a little, I'm a little, like... Huh? About this movie? Yeah, it's for me has not aged yeah. well. It's it's. I guess just a Cliff Notes version. He's a black man. Uh, she's a blind woman, as you just said, and he's like, and he's nice to her, and he's nice to her. Period. Period. That's the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and she falls in love, and she's like, what? Um, I did watch. I wanted to mention in '65, The Slender Thread. Oh yes, with Anne Bancroft. Um, and it's like he works at a suicide hotline, yeah. and she's like. This wife who, I don't know, is having issues. And I forgot about that movie because I saw it years ago. But I do like, I think I yeah. vaguely remember liking it. It's yeah. very like, tell me where you are, girl. Uh, yeah. We gotta save you. And she's like, she's taking pills. Yes, yes. Um, what do you want me to do? Say, okay, kid. Do you want to get out of it? Go ahead. I'll sit here and keep your company like a slob while you die. Well, can't you just have your coffee and... Sweet. I can't. Don't you understand? I can't just give up like that. 67 is the year that defines his career. Yeah, he ends up having the three biggest movies he will ever have. Mm-hmm. Those movies are To Sir With Love, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm-hmm. Both Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night end up getting nominated for Best Picture. Um, to Sir With Love. Cliff Notes version. He's a teacher. He goes to a secondary school in the east end of London. He really wants to be an engineer, but he takes this teaching job. The kids are all nasty, and Mm -hmm. he teaches them to respect him. To be good gentlemen and ladies. Um, This movie is a little silly for me, I will say. I do like this. I'll I'll admit. You like the song? When Lulu starts singing the song at the end, I teared up a little. I was like, he really didn't change them. Um, It's cute. The... From a filmmaking standpoint, I love the montage in the middle for the for the museum. And you want to know what that is? The museum, like, literally the day they were shooting was like, you can't bring those cameras in here. Ah, I, so, I thought, I was like, this is so weird, but yeah, they, made it they work. saved it. They made it work. Um, but less of the three, I would say. Yes. I would say on the list going up, the next less of the three is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm-hmm. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is the movie I was referring to when I talk about, like, sugarcoating the racism. Like, mm-hmm. it's like... It's San Francisco, honey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I will say... I do think some of the stuff has aged n- not badly, but interestingly. Because mm-hmm. there's that scene, but uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is a movie in which a, a white girl brings a black man home whom she's going to marry. Um, they and, met 10 days ago. Yes, and she has incredibly liberal white parents, played by Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. And they are San Francisco liberals down for anything. <gasps> Until. Wow. Yeah. and But like... In, this movie is more an investigation of, like, the, the main thread is, like, this man, the father, who's like, you know, I love, you know, I, I'm not racist, but the rea- he's, his whole thing is, like, the reality is life will be harder for you, and 
there's like a his friend who's a monsignor yeah who's like bitch maybe you are racist and, yeah. he, and he's like bitch no i'm not well that's i mean that's the thing i mean by like some of the stuff is like maybe aged in a in a way that's a little more interesting than i thought it was yeah. because there's that great scene he has with sydney portier spencer tracy and he's like you know like willie mays could be mm-hmm. uh mayor of this and i couldn't get you know elected dog catcher because i'm white and you you have all the advantages of a black man and it's like what the fuck are you saying white man like i remember when i was about your age my sports editor telling me that negroes would never be able to play baseball oh i suppose if he wanted to willie mays could be elected mayor of san francisco i own a newspaper but i couldn't be elected dog catcher well i don't guess you want to be dog catcher any more than he wants to be mayor of san francisco No, I suppose that's right. Have you given any thought to the problems your children are going to have? Yes. And they'll have some. And we'll have the children. Otherwise, I don't know what you'd call it, but you couldn't call it a marriage. Is that the way Joey feels? She feels that every single one of our children will be president of the United States, and they'll all have colorful administrations. It's very, like, you know, kind of, I mean, it's kind of a takedown of, like, fucking liberals who think they're that girl and they're not yeah i will say um this movie belongs to Catherine hepburn oh it is, yes i i watched it with derek and there was the moment where she like dismisses her like assistant and fires her and fires her and i was like yes queening yeah, all the best. Uh, I, she uh, you have to excuse her she really has a, a short temper i think she gets her father and i was like ah <laughs> It's, it's and she's and, like remove any evidence that yeah. you've ever been yeah. in my office ah. it also looks like she's about to cry the yes. entire movie well that's a separate reason which is spencer tracy was dying the whole time oh my God. they had to put up like essentially her and sydney poitier put up their salary in order and stanley kramer put up their salary to be like we want spencer tracy because the wow. the studio was like no we can't insure him and he dies 10 days after they stop filming. Jesus. This is also part of that narrative of having to play the saintly mm. black man. He, oh my God. He's the, the, a doctor, but not just a doctor. He's the doctor. Yes. He saved everybody. And interestingly enough, in order to make it seem a little less racist, they've also given him, made him like a decade older than her. Yeah. And that he ha- already had a wife and kid. A wife and, and kid who, who died who in died. a tragic And incident. so it's like all of these factors that they're, make him the stalwart. Right. They're know. making it. I mean, what, what to, to me, beyond making him like this a saint, they're throwing everything in the face of her parents being like, no, bitch. What, it's not this, so what is it? Yeah. Nope, his job is perfect. Yeah. Nope, he he did it. He, he did back. Is this on you? Yeah. Are you got, yeah. yeah, it's very that. So the, the cream of the crop of this like year of mega hits is in the heat of the night. Like It's just fucking insane how good this movie is um and 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 but also like in the you know pantheon of like movies about race yeah and that he that he's in that really just fucking drive it home and hit it out of the park like it's this is the movie absolutely there's a really amazing book called pictures at a revolution by mark harris who i don't love his online presence but is a fantastic author so uh, go read that that's specifically about this academy award 
and there's so much good but not just juicy behind the scenes stuff but like a good cultural critique of what was going on especially with the competition of in the heat of the night versus guess who's coming to dinner because these very different depictions of racism and in the heat of the night has a much more realistic tone he's a philadelphia policeman who goes back to mississippi he's visiting and he gets wrongly accused and arrested for a crime where he's like bitch like no and they're like mad that he's making so much money mad that he's got things just like a black man in mississippi who has nice things and he's immediately a suspect for this murder and he he says no bitch i'm a police officer in philadelphia call my fucking officer guy over there and his detective guy over there is like you should stay and help them to figure out this murder and he's like would love to not do that actually (laughs) and You know, this movie is filled with realistic depictions. He said the scene that broke him was the scene where they're driving through a cotton field. And this man that he's been partnered with, as he looks at all of these black people picking cotton, this man that he's been partnered with literally says, none of that for you, huh? I know. Awful. And he wouldn't sign his contract for this film unless he got the stipulation. There's a scene where he gets slapped Uh for simply accusing or possibly accusing a man of murder and he slaps the man he backhands him back i said if he slaps me i'm going to slap him back you will put on paper that the studio agrees that the film will be shown nowhere in the world with me standing there wesley morris talks about like that was a slap heard around the world like that is and, and I mean, and after he slaps him, this fucking guy is like, there was a time when I could have had you fucking shot for that. And 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 in that scene, like there are black people picking cotton outside. There yeah. is a black man who a, is a servant holding lemonade. Yes. Like, <laughs> and and it's just like this is a random side note, but like I was just in Guatemala and I saw men building houses that looked like my grandfather, and I was just like, you're looking at history. It's right there. Your yeah. history is right there. And I and so I can imagine a similar feeling of like he is looking in the face of these and and they linger on these people who are working in the field who are looking back at him and it's just like and you get a little bit of that in guess who's coming for dinner the they have a a woman who's their maid or whatever and she straight up tells him like you know you think you're better than me you're higher in your station and it's like they play it for laughs, but it's like that's the problem. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, I don't like this. I, I, it's it's so tough. But yeah, I mean, in the heat of the night is they. I mean, to finally understand the joke of they call me Mr. Pig from or Mr. Like, Tit. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, from Lion King. To finally understand yeah. that joke, they call me Mr. Tibbs. I got it. Thank you, Gavin. <laughs> Hilario. Um, the movie is iconic, though. Like it's it's. Unparalleled. It ends up winning the Academy Award for Best Picture. Rod Steiger, who plays his partner, also receives the Academy Award for Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editing, Hal Ashby, uh, Best Sound Mixing. So uh, it, it is a film that does not go unnoticed. But post this, you know, this is when he starts getting criticized for being, you know, uh, a man without sexuality, without personality faults. You know, he he's right. the saintly black man. He's the black man everybody come, calls... Everybody calls when they need a, a black role. There's a very famous New York Times article that hurt Sidney Poitier. So much so, he names a chapter in his book after it, which is, Why Do White People Love Sidney Poitier? So. Yeah, yeah. I tried looking it up because they mentioned it in Wesley's uh, yeah. appraisal. It wouldn't load. And a part of me is like, what's going on here? Yeah. New York Times is like, 
We didn't write that. <laughs> um, and and so he like sees this reputation he's getting, and it starts causing him to turn down work. He doesn't want to be seen as this so much so he turns down. Um, in 1966, the opportunity to play Othello in an NBC television production of Othello. Wow. Because if you, like, famous Shakespeare play about a black man who a white man convinces to kill his wife. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, I don't I don't want to do this. Like, right. this is not, you know, I don't want to be the white man's puppet. I do want to bring up a, a film that comes out um, shortly after that uh which is 1968's for the love of ivy uh this is a romantic comedy that like is incredibly dated which is why i think it doesn't have as much cachet as a lot of but i think has some slightly more interesting conversations around race than guess who's coming to dinner or handled in a less like sugar-coated way mm. and essentially it's about a maid uh ivy who's worked for a white family for nine years and she decides she's gonna quit and she's gonna go out and get a job or go out and live her life essentially and this family like clearly doesn't know clearly doesn't know anything about her they took her and she became their live-in maid um and the children of the family decide to set her up with a black man in order to get her to stay and mm. this black man is Sidney Poitier who owns his own company but also secretly on the side owns his own gambling business okay. and so it's like it's she's all that but yeah, like yeah. but like kind of in a very racist way yeah. and Sidney Poitier is like you want her to be your servant? Like, that's really what... Like, you want to keep her around... Hashtag goals! Yeah, like, that's all you want for her in her life? And I think the romance portion of this movie, Abby Lincoln plays Ivy. The chemistry is so fucking good. Mm. They have so many good... Com- and he's, like, a very learned man. Like, he takes her to a Japanese restaurant and speaks Japanese the whole time. Wow. And she's like, where did you learn Japanese? And he's like, oh, the army. You know, like he, he is somebody who doesn't want to see her stuck in that position. And that's why he goes along with this. You're something. Well, you don't want me, so I can't be very much. I suppose I did want you. I wouldn't mind. You just throw yourself at anybody. Well, you're not just anybody. That's right. Look, I'll call Eddie and uh, he can ride you around before he takes you home. Preserve your reputation as a swinger. I think it's a fascinating film and definitely worth looking up. But it is more... His character is a little on the shadier side. And therefore, I think people don't remember it as well because he's not the stalwart and strong. And he's the man that in the end is like, you need to get away from these white people. Yeah, They do not have your best interests at heart. Um... I don't know if you got to see this, so, but that's... What I did I, not, but that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, because, like, it's the same, like, you, he couldn't... The success came with playing to the whites. Yeah. And also, you know, 1969. Once again, the these this is sort of the... As he goes on, the these roles start becoming more black and therefore less popular. He does a movie called The Lost Man, which uh, is uh, a remake of the the movie odd man out but in this version he plays a member of the black panthers who helps plan a robbery they steal money and he kills a 
guard on the way out because this guard kills one of his men and so therefore is being hunted by police and his plan for this money is to give it to the cause give it to the people who need it give it to the families who are living in poverty and he's being hunted by the police this whole time because he killed a white man Mm. and it's it's a morally very complicated film and because of that white audiences do not no, want thank it. you this is a film that's not even ever been released on dvd wow. which is funny for two reasons because of the moral but also he meets his second wife making this movie and so like it's the only time that they've ever acted together weird yeah uh, it's very strange i highly recommend looking it up but once again it's another thing where like you have to sit through some bad quality if you want to watch it. Okay. He makes two sequels to In the Heat of the Night. They call me Mr. Tibbs and The Organization. Both of them suck. <laughs> they also, like, for some reason, set him in San Francisco. Like, gone is the Philadelphia thing. He also <laughs> has kids and a wife now, even though he told Rod Steiger he didn't. I feel like there's a lot of San Francisco in his yeah. movie career. In 1972, he makes his directorial feature debut in the movie Buck and the Preacher. Um, he stars alongside his friend... Harry Belafonte, they originally hired director Joseph Sargent, and after about a week of filming, they realized, like, this man does not understand the black sensibilities that we are going for. They fire him, and Sidney Poitier takes over. Amazing. And directs his first film. This movie is amazing. It's a very... It's a revisionist Western. It's about a black wagon train. You know, most of the lead characters are black or indigenous. It deals with the relationship between the black people and the indigenous people. It's set during Reconstruction in which a lot was promised to black people and rarely given. Mm -hmm. And most black people who didn't move out west became indentured servants in the south. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating thing to to talk about. I also really love it because I think Harry Belafonte's character is maybe one of the most interesting western characters I've ever seen because he's truly a man who's serving his own master. Yeah. Where you gonna find that money? I don't know. If it was me, I'd I'd look for money where money's kept. Like in a bank. Or an express office. We gonna just ride in sometime, walk in the bank and just take it up. That's right, brother. And I know just the place. Yeah, I I, I watched it because you said um you recommended it, and I I was like, first of all, Harry, Harry Belafonte, even with those fucked up teeth, is so hot. Um, but but also, yeah, he's because you're waiting for the other shooter drop, and you're like, oh, is he gonna fucking like, you know, fuck him over? Yeah, but he doesn't, right. and it's like he's it's, got his own demons. It's it's yeah. so complicated and complex, and even just him storytelling about his past and where he grew up and like how he became a quote unquote preacher. It's very interesting and very yeah. like. They, he was able to make such a layered movie. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so interesting. And what's around. what's also interesting about this is, you know, this is a year before Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which is essentially the start of exploitation, mm. And he basically starts laying down the prototype of what is a exploitation film. Um, it's... Very, it's still, like, in the Hollywood realm, but it has a lot of those techniques. It's got, you know... A lot. The music is there. All of oh, it. such good music. Yeah, it's I, such good. I'm, yeah. Thank God you remember. There's it. so much Quincy Jones in Cindy Poitier's career, and it's great mm-hmm. anytime he shows up. Because that's a, even the second um, in the heat of the night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Terrible movie, but like mm-hmm. Quincy Jones. Yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah. It's grooving. It's very grooving. Um, so it's starting this like new way of black filmmakers, and even though, like I said, it's playing within the Hollywood system, it's like 
creating that template that other people build off of and create an entirely new genre. Yep. Um, now this, we're probably going to start zooming here because he starts working less. He starts directing more. Yeah. I'm going to say I, outside of that movie, I didn't watch anything else from him in the seventies. Oh, wow. Um, he, he directs Uptown Saturday Night, 1974, which is a vehicle for him and, and Bill Cosby. Harry Belafonte plays the villain in it. It's fine. Um, there's, uh, two more of those. They're not sequels, but they're considered like an informal trilogy because mm. they're playing different characters. Don't make your comedies over two hours, kids. Don't. Um, he also ends up directing, uh, the most successful comedy of his career, which is the Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder duo comedy, Stir Crazy. Um, I watched this. There's some good stuff in it. I think my issue with Sidney Poitier as a director is especially because he directed so many comedies is he doesn't direct them like comedies mm. he directs them like dramas and that works for buck and preacher because it's not a comedy right it's a drama but i think he wants to like he's interested in characters he's interested in realism you know when they shot hanky panky with gene wilder which is the film after stir crazy he was like we have to shoot it in new york we have to shoot it in boston these are the cities in it those are and it's like no, you you don't. Yeah, it's yeah. a comedy. Like, yeah. you know, but he was interested in in the the deeper soul of that. So, I think that takes away from the bit of the spontaneity. Mm-hmm. And I think Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor really make it work in Stir Crazy because they're so because they're geniuses. Yeah, they're geniuses. <laughs> they're so heightened. Um, it doesn't necessarily work in all of his other. I mean, I love Gilda Radner, but Hanky Panky is Gene Wilder, Gilda Radner. And it just doesn't work. The plot's not good. They're funny when they're given the chance to be it, but <laughs> there's so much emphasis on the drama of it mm. that it just it didn't really do much for me. 85, he does Fast Forward, which is a movie I fully forgot existed, and it stars no one. <laughs> like, no one that you know. It's a movie about a dance troupe from Sandusky, Ohio, who Amazing. comes to New York to make it big. Of course. And they have to live here for, like, two months... This is a movie I saw so many times as a kid and then completely blocked it out. And I will say, I genuinely think this movie is why I love New York so much. Uh, I rewatched this it. This is the source code. For yes, you? I was like, oh, I got it. It's not good. I don't want to. I don't want to be like, okay. oh, this movie's great, but it's a fun dance. Like lots of fun dancing. I posted a clip of it. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sort of mysteriously on our Instagram. Um, I recommend doing it. Um, in 90, he also directs Bill Cosby, Boo, uh, One Last Time in Ghost Dad. During the most of the 80s, he has quit acting. Right. He does, what, Shoot to Kill, which I mentioned yeah. earlier. So he takes time off to focus on directing, to write his book. He learns a bunch of other stuff, too. He realizes he's later in his life than he wants to be to be learning new things, but he wants to learn new things. He doesn't just want to be this sort of figurehead. He does Shoot to Kill in 88. Um, He does Sneakers in 1992, which we talked about in our Robert Redford episode. Mm -hmm. His chemistry with Redford is off the charts. Yeah, that's a fun movie. So much fun. I was, like, expecting it to be, like, I don't know, the Expendables in the 90s. But, like, it's it's fun. It's thrilling. It's, like, you know, a cutesy little yeah thriller. Now the box. <coughs> uh, I have never taken my wife to Europe. I'm sorry to hear it. Give me the box. You will buy me two round-trip first-class tickets to Athens, Lisbon, Madrid, and Scotland. Don't, don't forget Tahiti. And Tahiti. Tahiti is not in Europe. 
In 97, he plays supporting role in The Jackal, which is a movie I watched for the first time and kind of wish I had had my time back. Uh, um, they made a sequel to to Start With Love. Yes. And well, that's... And listen, sometimes we talk about TV movies on this show. Other times... We don't. We don't. He does a smattering of TV films in the 90s. I'm sure most of them are very good. Um, Separate but Equal, Mandela and Clerk, The Simple Life of Noah Dearborn. But I would say the two highlights, the two that I really went for were To Sir Would Love 2, which is redonkulous. Okay. It's like a 90210 episode. But with, I mean, it's very clear. It came out in 96. It's a year after Dangerous Minds. It's very clear what the template is. Right, right, right. For that. And the other one I do want to point out is The Last Brickmaker in America. It's his final film role. It's a TV mm. film. Uh, I only want to point it out because it is unfortunately a movie in which a black man has to teach white people how to live. But it's very clear to me he's coming from a place of like this man. It's, it's about a man whose wife has passed away and he's a brick maker and she is getting a library at the school she worked at dedicated to her. And he wants to do the bricks for the foundation of this library. And he has like 30 days to make 22,000 bricks or something. And he only does it the old way. It's like him and a mule, like churning the thing. He's firing the bricks himself and there's a man in competition with him and that man's life is falling apart his wife is leaving him the kid doesn't the kid acts up and is kicked out of school and he the kid comes to help him and it's nice but i also see him what he was doing is he's like he was a very big proponent of the old ways mm. and he's like these are the old things and these are the you know and he's teaching this kid you know Please and thank you will get you a long way. Right. A good sir or ma'am, you know, like, and it was kind of nice to watch because it also felt like he hadn't lost a step, mm. even though he's 73 in the movie. Right. I mean, there is a stunt in the movie that I was like, that is a stunt, man. Yeah. But, uh, but I was just like, I would watch him do this stupid yeah. stuff that's kind of below him. Yeah. Because he just elevates it. Yeah. Um, 2002, he received the honorary Oscar award. Um, for overall contribution to cinema. I accept this award in memory of all the African-American actors and actresses who went before me in the difficult years, on whose shoulders I was privileged to stand to see where I might go. Denzel Washington later in that same Oscar ceremony wins Best Actor for his performance in Training Day. And he calls out Sidney Poitier in his speech. 40 years I've been chasing Sydney. They finally give it to me. What they do? They give it to him the same night. I'll always be chasing you, Sydney. I'll always be following in your footsteps. There's nothing I would rather do, sir. Nothing I would rather do. Which is interesting because Denzel Washington sort of both fought and played into that his entire career. Yeah. I found another great clip where he it was brought up very early in his career about being the next Sidney Poitier. Oh, you're the next Sidney Poitier. I said, you know, that's the most racist thing I've ever heard in my life. Because you're saying it can only be one person at a time. There was one 40 years ago and now there's one now. You know, and you, and you can only be compared to one other person and that person has to be black. And that's who you are. And we, we've decided who, what you are, what category, and see you later. That's who you are. I always resented that. At the same time, I was like, okay. <laughs> I'll take it. You know, great actor. You know, wonderful human being. So this is a this is a big 
moment for him. As of 2012, Poitier, until he unfortunately passed away just recently, was the oldest living recipient of the Academy Award for Best Actor. Um, Ernest Borgnine died in 2012. And in 2021, the Academy dedicated um, the lobby of the new Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles as the Sidney Poitier Grand Lobby in his honor. My reservation about that is that the Academy Awards were the people that could have changed these things earlier, could have made a statement by, but didn't. Yeah. And I have had friends who have been to the Academy Museum that say it's really fucking weird because instead of it being like, we're sorry we didn't do it. A lot of it is like, look at all the things we did over the years to progress change. So I have some reservations about yeah. the Sydney Portier Grand Lobby. But I mean, yeah, I, I have no fucking clue. I mean, like, <laughs> I, th- this all seems like stuff like as time goes on, like, you know, it's sins of our father type of shit. And like, it's fucked up. And, you know, I guess fine. Sure. Like, <laughs> okay, good. We gave him a lobby. He deserved a lot more. Bitch. He des- yeah, he definitely deserved a lot more. Um, I do just a bit of his personal life. I mentioned his first wife in 59. Um, once again, remember, his first wife and him didn't divorce till 65. In 59, he starts a nine-year affair with Diane Carroll, who he was in Paris Blues with. Um, and then he marries Joanna Shimkus, who was a Canadian actress who starred with Poitier in The Lost Man in 69. And they remain married for the rest of his life. He has four daughters with his first wife, Beverly, Pamela, Sherry, and Gina, and two with his second, Anika and Sidney Tamiya, who is also an actor and was in some of those TV movies with him. Um, in addition to his six daughters, he has eight grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. He was, you know, without a doubt, one of the most important actors we've ever covered on this show. Um, he gave a lot of his time, a lot of his money to advancing the causes of Black people. Uh, as we mentioned, he was friends with Martin Luther King. He had to deal with a lot of shitty um press that would only ask him about being a Black man, only ask him about riots, only ask him handled it beautifully uh you ask me questions that fall continually within the negroness of my life you ask me questions that pertain to the narrow scope of the summer riots i am artist man american contemporary i am an awful lot of things so i wish you would uh, pay me the respect do and not simply ask me about those things it can't be undersold or understated like how like this was not just a man who we've talked about people who like wanted to be a star you know wanted to go to hollywood and make it big in the pictures like he one was trying to survive two was shaping culture like just by you know being himself and 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 putting himself in fucking danger like you know there's a difference between like you know fucking cops throwing him in jail because it's after dark and like him going with Harry Belafonte down to the South to deliver money for funds and being chased by fucking Klansmen. Like this is an Oscar winner by this time, literally being chased by Klansmen. Like what the fuck? Yeah. Like it's, there are like, (laughs) typically when we talk about like personal lives, it's like they give to this cause. They're good people. Like they raise money. Like it's they're they're not looking into the face of evil, <laughs> and and it's frustrating because, as we've talked about before, and we talked about at the beginning of this episode, a lot of this stuff isn't talked about. Mm-hmm. It's underreported. We live in a, a United States 
that very much believes it's post-racial. I mean, obviously, there's been things over the last couple of years. Yeah. But I mean, two but, summers ago that that feel like maybe the tide is starting to turn. But Sidney Poitier has said when he was living through the 60s, when he was experiencing the change, and he's also said, by the way, that art doesn't change people's minds. It can be an annoyance. It can be a pusher. But it doesn't do it itself. People have to act. And the children of the 60s acted. And they did things. They did the sit-ins. They did, you know, the in order to move the barometer, you actually have to make motions. And art is good and well for reflecting the, the way you want life to be. But it can't just be that. You have to... And I think, you know... We, Sidney Poitier said when he was when he was younger, he believed that he was going to live in a future where everybody was equal, and that they, you know, when they did the civil rights movement in the '60s, by the '90s, everything would be fine and everybody would be okay and it'd be kumbaya. And he was like, "I was an idiot for that," hmm. and I I truly believe that. And there's so much work to be done. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, he lived both of those things so truthfully, like. He was making the art and he was acting like, no pun intended, like he was taking action um, in the civil rights movement. You know, he was just really, again, walking that line, doing both things and pushing the culture forward. So, goddamn. Yeah, that's an intense rewind. Yeah, an intense and very uh, simplified. Yes. And once again, there are so many things you can go out and read about Sidney Poitier. Use this as your gateway. Watch these movies, you know, yeah. get your education because that's what we're hoping. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we do the show is to like yeah. tell you about these things so you'll go and, and research them on your own. But that being said, the nature of the show is that we have to do picks. So we're going to start with our one star reviews, move into those, yeah, and tell you about the things that we didn't particularly like. The nature of the show is there must be a one star. I, I would even argue that he made a lot of movies that are like. Not even memorable at all. They're just kind of like there. Yeah. You know? I um, watched a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my one star review has to be a patch of blue. Like I. <laughs> Which was once again, a film that changed things for a lot of people. Because I mean, that kiss, that kiss exists. Yeah. 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 But it's like the kiss exists, but she is yes. blind. Right. And so like the whole, the whole crux of this movie is like lingering on or hangs on that. Like she, she literally cannot see color. Um, and she is kind of like a dumb dumb. She is. But, and I don't mean that in like, she's a stupid girl, but like the, the movie supposes or wants us to believe that like she's blind and her parents or her mother who's raising her and her grandfather who's raising her, they don't let her out into the world at all. Yeah. And so she can't. She doesn't know what Braille is. She's like, there's an intense moment where she's like outside and she's like, oh, I'm scared and I'm lost and I can't do anything. Like she's so. You acted that very well. Thank you. She's so, um, she, she's not self-sufficient in any type of way, which is to me, I'm like, I mean, this is kind of fucking this like insulting, you know, like the yeah. blind people are living very full lives. Like relax. Selena, there are many kinds of love. Most of them have nothing to do with marriage. You mean you don't want to marry me? I believe there are reasons why it wouldn't work out. Because of my being blind? Because of where I come from? But again, this is with my 2022 eyes. Anyway, um, Sidney Poitier is a guy who, like, I don't know, just fucking sees her in a park and is just like, what do you mean you don't know what Braille is? And come on, I'll show you how to get in and out of the park by yourself. Because, like, the whole gag is that her grandpa has to, like, 
drop her off and pick her up because she cannot literally exist in this world without someone else. And she's also like, wait, I'm pretty. What? No, I have scars in my eyes. It's crazy. He gives her, like, the most enormous pair of glasses on the planet. And he's like, look, you're beautiful. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's just uh, for me. And now it's like you... uh, even the movies that maybe haven't aged as well or are hard to watch, there are still things to, like, obviously glean and learn from. Yeah. This movie, I'm just like, I don't... I think it's time has beyond past. You yeah. know, she... There's, like... And and beyond that, there are hard parts out there. Like there's, she tells him that she basically has been raped, and that's her only... She's like, yeah, I've had sex before. It's crazy. Yeah, totally. She doesn't even know that it, it was rape. Yeah, it was assault. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh... She talks about how, yeah, oh, she had a black friend and, like, was her only friend. But then she went away because when my mom found out, like, made her a fucking leave. And it's just, like, it's this movie's trying so yeah. hard. Um, and it, and and it's, um, maybe it worked really well back then. Um, maybe. <laughs> I could see, I mean, I'm I'm with you. It was not one of my favorites. I did, uh, this is a movie I'd seen years ago and didn't feel the need to revisit. And I will say, he is funny and charming and, like, but in this movie, it's just very, like, kind of, like... It feels hollow to me, you yeah. know, like we, we get a lot of story about her. His character is just like a black man who he lives with his brother, I guess. And his brother's like, you got to stop doing this because it's fucking weird. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, it's yeah. yeah, it's like, go learn and we'll be together after you go learn Braille and like things <laughs> because it wouldn't be right for us to because so even they have the kiss yeah. and all the things he does like. He, he, they do not end up together. He yeah. says, go learn and I'll, I'll be here waiting. Yeah, I'll just wait for you. My life will pause for right. you to have your white life. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, my one star review is the aforementioned 1957 something of value, which I only wanted to bring it up at the beginning because I knew I was going to come back to it. Um, I know it's very early on in his career and he probably didn't have a lot of control or enough to assert control. And there are, once again, other films in his career that are maybe are more well known. But I think this, you know, this is a big budget film and it's a film in which he plays an, a man from Kenya, um, an African man who like grew up with rock hudson and basically from the first time you meet them he's like scared and kind of subservient to rock hudson and like oh what would life be like if we weren't friends and like smash cut to five years from now he's like leading a revolution and he's like (laughs) we can't have the white man around and like honestly the movie is supposed to be like well you shouldn't be on his side because they're being real violent the black people those mean black people but i was like no they, they like literally and the and the movie does try and you know eat its cake and have it too which is by being like you know black people just get arrested for existing in in Kenya now by white people if they get if they come into the city and we can do whatever we want to black people and that's wrong and i agree i'm on the movie's side when it says things like that but then also don't paint all the black people like they're savages with right. guns right. and don't paint all the white people like they're stoward and true and they're just defending themselves. Yeah. You know, there, there's a scene early on in the film where he like goes to Rock Hudson's house and they murder um, like it's I think the only person home is Rock Hudson's sister and her children and they murder Rock Hudson's sis, his, his niece. I mean, his nephew and 
but like Sidney Poitier protects the woman. And so like, he's like, no, we can't hurt these people because they're our family and whatnot. And then he like pleads his case with Rock Hudson later on. He's like, I didn't do anything to hurt her. Like it wasn't me. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, but like, I don't, what is the message here? Like right, what, it, right. what like in the end, you still are subservient to the way it's, it's all very muddled and all just very unfortunate. And no movie made me as mad, even dealing with the white American racism, uh, probably because I've used to it. I've seen it in my real life. I know it exists. Nothing made me as mad as watching a colonizer's version mm. of someone else's civil war. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, Ugh. fuck off. And of course, in the end, Sidney Poitier has to die of for course. his transgressions, you know? And yeah. And he's also painted as like, well, he's the good one. Right. So like, yeah, it's very frustrating. Um, it's hard to watch. I mean, it, it, nothing made, I had to, I paused it in the middle and came back to it the next day. Mm. Cause I, I couldn't take it. No one ever struck me in anger before. Not even my own father. It wasn't in anger. He's already forgotten it. Can you forget it? I cannot forget it either. We are alike in many things. You talk Kikuyu same as me. I speak English same as you. But you are white and I am black. And you are the Buana, and I am the servant. And I carry the gun, and you shoot. Why is shooting the gun so important? It's not the gun. It is. What is it, then? What? Also, don't name your movie something easily making fun of a bull. I like, know. Like, something of value? Awful. Nothing of value. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything else that you saw that you didn't particularly like? Um, I, I thought uh, Pressure Point was hard to watch yeah because i was like i'm being fucking tricked right now like yeah but I, but I think the i think some of the stuff in pressure point is very good and very informative yep all the stuff you're talking about the QAnon type shit and whatnot yep it is very like yeah this is this is what's happening there are some people out there who would watch that and be like i don't understand yeah, yeah. not us yeah but like um and then i i also not that i think it's like a one star at all but like um in the field of lilies or whatever the fuck, I just was like, why this? To me, it's just so... He has so good in so um, many other the, things. Lilies in the field? Is yeah. that you're like, the field of lilies? Yeah, whatever. Like, he's so ferocious yeah. in so many other things. And this... I'm just like... I Yogurt. I, it's yogurt. I see where you're coming from, but I, I did like it. And maybe I just I have a... Maybe I just have a penchant for sweet German nuns, but I'm like... Not, I, 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 I did not... Like, not like it. Like, yeah. I, I'm not, like, hating it, but I was just like, heh. Um, so unmemorable. I think the only other... I mean, there's a couple things throughout this career that I, you know... <gasps> oh my god, I forgot. I, I watched Duel of Diablo. I was just gonna say, Duel of Diablo is, is highly uh. forgettable. Um, and, like, you know, could be something... Paris Blues, once again, not a badly made film, but, like, mostly just because there's no tension with the love triangle, mostly just a vibe, and yeah. I wasn't vibing with it. Yeah. You know, that's the... Um, but yeah, I'd say, why don't we get out of our one star reviews and into our five star reviews? I was thinking about this and then I was like, God, there is no fucking answer beyond a raising the sun. It's just that bitch. Like it's, first of all, like it, he plays Walter Lee Younger. This, this, this. This play is one of the great American plays of all time. Absolutely. It's just like seminal text, Lorraine Hansberry. Just, it is so informative of 
an American family who is on the cusp of pulling themselves out. Yeah. And that, and I think that, and the, and the myth of that, you know, and the myth of like how you're supposed to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like it is so informative because by some, it's not even a miracle by the fucking awful hard work of their, of his father who has now died because he worked himself to death. They have money to right. fucking do the thing. They have a chance. Yes. A small chance. Yes. A, mu- a minuscule chance. Yes. But a chance. And and while, the, you know, and, and they're showing this their life, that they, they are cramped up in this tiny fucking apartment. Yeah. Both his mother and wife are, you know, working for people, right. um, you know, being maids. He is a chauffeur. Like, the, the kid is, like, sleeping on the fucking couch. They're sharing a communal restroom with, like... I think the building, because it's like other people are trying. Yeah. Um, Which is a pretty common thing in a tenement. Yes. Like, yeah. They're in Chicago in a tenement, and they're trying to get out, trying to make a good life for themselves, and the desperation of Walter Lee, and like, he wants to be something so badly, and he, this is a man on the fucking edge. Yeah. Like, it's truly, and and not only is it a man on the fucking edge, but his wife is on the edge, played by the incredible Ruby D. Yeah. She's Who pops so... up in so many movies with him, and yeah. I was so happy to finally, because I've seen movies with Ruby D, but most of them are only when she's older. And she's also one on the edge, and on the edge of, like, my husband is fucking insane. Yeah. And... Because you know, she agrees with the mom for the most part. Yes. She's like, let's just get a house and yeah. let's just try and make it work. Get out of here. We have space, yeah. you know, and an investment for our... And, but also, like, sh- sh- her and the mom have, like, this tension of, like, I'm raising my son. Like, I don't... Yeah. I don't need you, like, you know, overstepping the boundaries and, like, you know, disciplining my son. It's just... So, so the myth is busted, though, because they have the opportunity and then... Well, oh well, when they decide to buy this house, the fucking like welcome wagon arrives, yeah. and it's this white guy who's like, "We're from the homeowners association," and turns out you're black. Yeah, it turns we, out we weren't expecting that. Would you like to leave? Yeah, <laughs> and is trying to, and again, like, is we're very nice people, and yes. we just think that people who are like each other um, are better off with other people like themselves. And here's a check. Get the fuck out. Yeah, and. But I also love the fucking sister story about she's like talking about Liberia and wanting to connect with her African roots and these, you know, American black people who are like, what the fuck are you talking right. about? Like you, enough of your flights of fancy, like yeah. work. Yeah. Like get to work. It's it's just so complex and yeah. layered. Everyone has like really great monologues. Like it's just the writing is. Mwah. I mean, that scene at the end where he's oh. where he's like rejecting the money. He's like, nope, this is where we're going to live. Like I this is my son. Mm-hmm. We're people. Mm-hmm. This is where we live. That's that scene is crucial. Yeah. Just like perfect American cinema. Because we are plain people, you know, we are plain people. Yes. I work as a chauffeur, you know. And my wife works in people's kitchens. And so does my mother. I mean, we are plain people. Mr. Younger. My father. My father was a laborer. All of his life. Yes. And my father once 
My father once almost beat a man to death because this man, he called him some kind of name, you know? That's my sister. And she is gonna be a doctor. And we are very proud. Well, see, sure. see, we we come from a long line of proud people. He makes the sixth generation, the sixth generation of my family in this country. So my five star review is, of course, it's fucking Raisin in the Sun. I mean, they're really it's shocking to me that he was not nominated for yeah. this. And it's clear to me why he wasn't, because it's a black movie. Yeah, it's a it black is. movie where he plays a black man who in the end is like, fuck you, white people. We're still here. It's the white man giving their hand out. And him saying, fuck off. Like, I am more than, you know, you giving us, quote unquote, help, like in the name of degrading themselves. Because the the tension is, there's a moment where he's like, we're going to fucking take that check. um, And we're going to and we're going to fucking make do because there are takers in this world. And we are taking right now. And his mom says, you fucking your son needs to see you do this. See how low you bring us just to like say thank you, sir, to these fucking white people. And that revelation, that like change in him and and realizing, you know, we're going to have less money, but we're still fucking better people. Yeah. And we're going to fucking make it. And like, listen, there are bangers in his career. There are absolute bangers. And we don't want to be like, oh, because we both picked the same one that disenfranchises any of the other work that he did because he did a lot of amazing work. But there's something so specific, so special about this and it being the first sort of glimpse for a lot of white people into the way that black people live. And spoiler alert, it's like us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're humans. Yeah, just trying to make ends meet. And there's something like it's lightning in a bottle when a generational force like Lorraine and her writing and... These legendary actors, not even just him, but Ruby D, and like it's just to get them all to converge together. They did it as a show on Broadway to make the film a leap. It's just you know it happens so rarely for all the pieces to fall into place, and also for a play to to leap into film and not feel stagey and mm-hmm. not feel that sort of like oh we've done this one million times. Yeah. We're just no the the that emotion is there that connection is there you really feel the inhabitants of these characters and sydney is acting his ass off yeah. it's really really beautiful um it feels like it's in conversation it's a very like do yourself a fucking favor a double feature of this and fences yeah. um and with fucking viola davis and denzel and it's just like again another classic american text like generational like everything is coming together and it's about these people who are just desperate to break free and just to make something of themselves and realizing there are forces in this world, like the hard, hard truth of people who are fucking racist and holding people back. Like you, the, you can't pick yourself up when people are holding you down. Absolutely. And that's what those movies are about. Uh, was there anything else you saw that you particularly liked? I mean, there's... In the Heat of the Night is... Yeah. Mwah, mwah, I, mwah, mwah. I honestly, for as much problems as I have, with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, that triptych to Sir Would Love, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, 
and in the heat of the night, in the heat of the night are necessary. If yes. you have not seen them, necessary texts. See see them. Um, I one movie that really affected me that I didn't mention, but I was waiting for this, is 1973's A Warm December. It's a film that Sidney Poitier directed himself. It's a romance. It's him as a doctor who's over in England, and he meets the niece of an ambassador from an African nation who is there to secure money from the Soviets to build a school. This is actually a pro-Soviet movie. And he meets her, and they fall in love but she is dying of hemophilia. Mm. And so it's this very sad romance. He has a child. His first wife has died. Um, He proposes to her and with the daughter there, and she says yes. And her uncle literally says to her, he's like, that child has lost one mother. Are you going to do that to her again? And so in the end, they don't end up together. I wept like a fucking baby. I was like, and they're so hot together. There's a scene where he's like, seducing her and they're talking and he's like touching her face and she's saying all the good things that are going to happen if they get this money and then she just drops so if you don't stop doing what you're doing I'm going to fall apart and they kiss and it's magic and it's one of those things where like nobody saw this movie yeah because it's black people in love yeah and it's so frustrating reason it's called warm December is because she refer she's like I'm in the December of my life and Mm. in the end she's like thank you for giving me a warm December Mm, wow it's very beautiful highly recommend if you're in the mood for romance not that many great romances out there no. and this is one of them yeah i also really liked buck and the preacher it's yeah. fun it's fun like well, for another movie he directed yeah for something as like you know awful subject but like it is a fun movie i think there's early the stuff earlier in his career i like the bedford in, incident i will go to bat more for lilies of the field obviously than you will um <laughs> the defiant ones is good yeah it's like you know and and i think like if if you go with it Go in knowing yeah. that it's, like, the white person's dream. And then, No Way Out. Hard movie. But I think to see him so young and see him clearly, like, already killing it's it. It's kind of shocking seeing him so young. And he's already the regal, just, like, majestic, fiery, the guy, like, classic Sydney. Like, there, yeah. he was Sydney Poitier from the beginning <laughs> to the end, bitch. Truly, truly. And... You know, didn't need to, wasn't method, wasn't, you know, no. like, the Riddler really haunted me. Um, You're so really like, mad about that. Huh? I just think it's very silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's because people say I look like Paul Dano. Uh, curse. <laughs> I think that wraps up his films. Why don't we do our Mixed Reviews review? My one star was 1965's A Patch of Blue. And my one star review was 1957's Something of Value. Boo. Boo. My five star review was 1961's A Raisin in the Sun. And my five star review was also 1961's A Raisin in the Sun. Really just truly an affecting movie and beautiful all around. All right, let's get into our fast forward. Like we mentioned, uh, Sydney passed away like last month. Yes. Or early February. Um, We're very bad at giving people their flowers while they're still alive. I know. I, but I will be, if I'm being perfectly honest, if we're, if we're talking about, um, this Sydney's been on our list for a long time. We did our poll last year when we were doing, our, our Black Hollywood, I knew this episode was going to be hard. Yeah. I knew that there's, for a large portion of the audience, they do not want to hear a white man talk about how much important a black man's career is. Mm-hmm. He's so important, and I think that can never be said enough. Yeah. And so maybe it doesn't matter where it comes from as long as you're telling it correctly. Yeah, and honestly, like, it's just about... I mean, he was so 
prolific and so good. And because even though he was, he had the milestone, he was the first one to win this Oscar, but like was for the wrong fucking movie. Yeah. And he should have had at least two more. Like, uh, at least, at least if we've made you like go out and check out one of his movies, like the work is done. Um, literally just see a raisin in the sun it's yeah it's it's you will be a better human for it and his career is full of these movies where it's like just being able to see the racism story from all these different angles that he had to endure like right um, imagine your first movie you are being spit in the face by a white person for art think yeah. think about that like i think about that a lot when, with these people who like we talked about it with um a oh god with the Fastbenders episode, I'm talking about like Lupita Nyongo and the shit she had to go through for for art. Like that shit fucks like me up thinking about it. And yeah. and so the next time you fucking see a movie and there's a black person who is having to play one of these roles where they're a slave or whatever the fuck, it's like that is some fucked up next level shit too. Like it's not just like I'm acting, ha ha ha. It's like no, this is history. There is like ghosts of like yes. trauma and terror like all around in this like that is not something you should take lightly um and you know a lot of it traces back to him and yeah. you know and and this like the things that he's blazed through you know and i you know mentioned viola because like that episode is so near and dear to me but like it, to hear her story and it's so similar but it's like she is literally a generation away yes. yeah. and like it's just like we are trapped in this fucking Ouroboros and, and I feel, yeah he maybe is or was the last we had of like old Hollywood yeah. and like that era and, and, and even in being the last of old Hollywood he was only the last of old Hollywood that Hollywood would let him be yeah so like which is not me saying that like I think there's like an asterisk next to his name or anything but I get so frustrated in thinking about the career he could have had mm-hmm and I know that doesn't help anybody. I know that doesn't, you know, but there are things he could have done. You know, when I was thinking about all the things that I wish I'd got to see more, honestly, I would have loved to see him play more villains. And then I saw the movies in which he played villains and I was like, oh, but no, because he like, because when he plays a villain in a movie like The Long Ships, which is a movie we didn't even talk about, he plays a Moorish king. Like the thing is, is like, he's not a villain. He's black. Yeah. And then he's the villain. Right. And so it's so frustrating that it it is all about who he is. And and he could have, you know, he could have had a thousand leading man role that he couldn't do movies without it being about his identity. Yeah. Because like the first thing you know about him is he was the first black man to win an Oscar. And so like everything he did, even in these like throwaway movies, like there's got to be a joke about like, you've never seen a black man before. Like it's just, it kind of haunted him and it's because we just wouldn't let it fucking go I and mean, we wouldn't let him be the like ultra sexy ultra charming ultra talented fierce fucking actor that he was right and uh, funny fucking funny yeah, yeah yeah i mean in sneakers he's funny like yeah. it's uh, it's a shame but we are so very lucky to we're, have yeah you know. we're blessed that mm-hmm. we got to have what we got from him yeah so i guess that wraps up sydney portier thank you so much for all of your work sydney and obviously like you deserve you deserve the praise. Yeah, yeah, everything and more. Uh, but if you want to contact us on this show, 
you can always find us on Twitter at, at The Mixed Reviews. Or on Facebook, just type in The Mixed Reviews. If you want to email us, you can find us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram, the underscore mixed underscore reviews. And if you want to listen to our back catalog of episodes, you can find us on a plethora of podcast apps. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, Audible, Amazon. And if you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please go there, leave us a five-star rating, write a little review, write a couple words, say, hey guys, hey peeps, what's up? Hurt you. Yeah. Anything that gets us a little higher in the algorithm because it really helps us out and we love doing this show for you. Yeah, thanks so much for listening and we will be back um, with a new episode in two weeks. Uh, we hope you are enjoying living, laughing, and loving. Go see Marry Me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be stopped. Yeah, thanks for doing NBC's dirty work. <laughs> yeah, it's it's me and Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. If you wanted the sky, I would ride.